Thank you for checking out this video. My name is Lindsay, and I'm so excited that you're here for this message from Redemption Church. Friday, I had zero voice. Nothing would come out when I opened my mouth. Lindsay said it was the best day of our marriage. <laughs> Yesterday, I came back a little bit. Uh, today, well, you can hear me. So I'm just going to give him my best, my best go here. And we're looking at four verses in the book of Genesis chapter 6. We're in a series called Sunday School. What we're doing is looking at classic stories in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at them through two lens. Lens number one, what are the Sunday School lessons that we need to learn or re relearn? And then secondly, the second lens, how do, do these stories ultimately point us to the person of Jesus? And so today we're just going to see four verses. Let me read them to you. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In our story last week, God warned Cain on the damaging effects of sin. He said to Cain, sin wants to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Cain didn't listen. He ended up murdering his brother Abel and then led to his wandering and in a breakdown of a familial relationship, we saw the effects of sin not controlled. Here, in the next story, though hundreds of years later, we see the effect of sin in a world that has not yet learned how to, in any way, control sin. It says that God looked down on the earth, and all he saw was evil. He didn't just see evil happening. He looked into the heart of humanity and the very intention, every thought of their mind and their heart was evil continually. We can't imagine the level of depravity that existed on the earth. Now, I can't tell the entire story of five chapters uh, in 20 minutes. And so for some of you, this may leave some questions about the flood, the scientific questions and how could a loving God send the flood and how did all the animals fit into the ark? I can't answer all of those this morning. On some of the scientific stuff, there's a resource, Answers in Genesis. If that's something that intrigues you, I would encourage you to go Look at that resource and study on your own. I will say this morning that we believe the story to be true, literal and factual. It's written in the Bible like a true story. It's referenced later in the scriptures like a true story. And so we believe it to be a true story. And in that, I understand that there are some things that might make a modern reader go, I don't understand how God could send a flood that would destroy the whole earth. Doesn't this mean that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament aren't stories like this, indications that it's a different God? I'll try to answer some of that as we tell the story of Noah and the flood. We'll do this through four Sunday school lessons, and then we're going to look in at five elements of Noah that I find intriguing. The first Sunday school lesson is this, sin grieves God's heart. It grieves his heart. 
God who created everything, who created it to be perfect, had had to deal with sin every step of the way. Sin occurred in the garden. God came down. Jesus did, placed himself in the garden to show humanity that even when you sin, I won't abandon you. I love you. And he comes down to earth. But then sin continues. And when Cain exercises sin over his brother, God shows him mercy by not giving Cain the punishment he deserved and by bringing back a path to redemption. And now sin is everywhere, a society full of it. There are no boundaries. There are no morals. There are no limits. It is absolute anarchy. The story right before the verses that we read tells of the Nephilim. This is the stuff that conspiracy theorists love, wondering, who are these people? I can't get into that this morning. But they were the men of renown, and they were evil, and they were in charge of the world. And as they were evil, the rest of the world followed Everything was screwed up. And God looks down at this because sin grieves his heart. In Sunday school lesson number two, God has to deal with sin. And so God steps in and he's going to deal with it differently here than he did with Adam and Eve. He's going to uh, deal with it differently than he did with Cain. This time the uh, sin is so rampant, he's going to deal with it, he says, by uh, sending a flood that will utterly destroy the earth. And in this story, we can't miss the fact that sin first breaks down relationship with God and human uh, God and humanity, then humanity amongst each other. That's the progression of the story. And now it's culminated so much that sin is actually affecting the relationship with animals, the relationship with the whole earth, and the relationship of all of humanity. Sin has literally destroyed everything. You can't miss in this story on the other end of it when God comes back and redeems everything that what he's trying to do is show that the redeemed earth and the future earth someday is when all of those things return back to harmony. Man and God, man and each other, man and the earth. But it all breaks down here. So sin grieves God's heart and God has to deal with sin. So he says, I'm going to destroy it all. Maybe that's hard for you because you think about the consequences of God sending a flood that destroys the whole earth. You think of people who would have lost their lives and, and the millions or the billions. We don't really know how many were on earth at this time. And it brings us to this place of saying, but how could he do that? I want to issue a slight warning at this point in the story because it is stories like this that remind us that God is God and we are not. Sunday school lesson number three, the story is not about us. The story isn't about you. See, our natural tendency always is to make ourselves the center of the universe and the hero of every story. But the point of the scripture is that we're never the hero of the story. The story all about Noah and the ark really isn't about Noah. It's about God extending his plan of redemption and deciding to use Noah. The story isn't about us. Think about this. You and your 2020 Western, Midwestern here in Ohio perspective on God. If there was nothing in the scriptures that contradicted with your perspective, then how would he be God? If the God of the entire universe has to agree with my 2020 perspective of everything, then that just makes me God. 
The fact that there's things in the scriptures that make my heart or my mind go, I don't know if I understand that, just proves that he is on a plane of thinking much bigger, better, and grander than mine. The story's not about me. It's reminiscent of what Paul would say later when he would say, who is the clay to yell at the potter? And there's something dangerous in stories like this where we look and we say, well, I don't understand it, God, so you must not be good or you must not be loving. No, the proper approach is to say, I don't understand it, which must make you God. And so I'll submit. Because the story really isn't about us. Is uh, humanity an important part of creation? Absolutely. But God created and God formed, not because he needed anything. He had everything in the context of the Trinity. He created and he formed out of his goodness and his love for his glory. And here his glory has been shattered by the sin of humanity. And so he deals with sin because the story isn't ultimately about us. But in verse 8, God does what God always does. He leads a path back to redemption. Sunday school lesson number four. This was Sunday school lesson number seven last week. I'm guessing, I don't know, but this is probably going to be the final Sunday school lesson of every week. It says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Noah because he was a great man and a good dude, and he was written about all throughout the scriptures. He makes it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. He's referenced by other writers in the uh, scripture. It says here that he's blameless. Uh, It's a word that doesn't mean sinless. He's not imperfect, uh, but he did have a heart towards God. But he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How does anyone find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Because God is good. And so God looks at the earth and he finds favor in Noah and Noah is made righteous and Noah then becomes the plan of God's redemption. And so God uses Noah, picks Noah to be the carrying on of his redemption. None of us can experience redemption. None of us can have favor in God's eyes because of our own efforts or our own work. And so God sees Noah and he decides to prolong his redemption strategy through Noah. Now, Noah is a good guy. He had a heart towards God. There are five lessons at least as we look through the story of him building this ark that are admirable. And I want to point them out to you because we should read the Bible and see some great lessons on how to live our lives. And so we won't skip over those, but we won't end there either. And so Noah, he was obedient when obedience didn't make sense. He was told to build an ark. He was given exact instructions for it. Many people believe that it had never rained on the earth up until that point. And so when God says, build an ark to protect yourself from the rain, that was pretty foreign. Wouldn't have made any sense to him. And Noah was obedient when obedience didn't make sense. But Noah's obedience now produced protection of an unknown enemy in his future. And obedience now for you and I, when obedience doesn't make sense, provides protection for us on enemies that we can't even see coming, but God does. And so he tells us and he instructs us, whether it's through his word or his Holy Spirit, to be obedient even when obedience doesn't make sense. And he has a way of using that obedience to protect us down the road. High school student, he does this through your parents. 
And they tell you things. And obedience doesn't make sense, but it's protecting you from something further down the road. In the same way, God speaks to us. And there is great benefit and protection by being sheltered by God's love, by being obedient in the present, even when it doesn't make sense. And Noah experiences that. And his obedience doesn't just affect him, by the way, parents. His obedience actually protects his children from unknown enemies down the road. Noah has faith when many others would have given up. He was told exactly how to build the ark. And with faith, he kept on building. Some speculate it was over 100 years. Now, they lived to 800 or 900, all right? So that was still an eighth of his life. He kept on building when many would have given up. And he didn't just build whatever he wanted. He followed the exact instructions on how God told him to build. And by following the exact instructions, the ark was exactly what it needed to be in the time when Noah and his family needed it. So maybe you've grown weary. Maybe you've gotten tired and your faith has dwindled and you don't want to keep building. You don't want to keep trying. You don't want to keep pursuing. You don't want to keep going. Your faith has left and you think it's been too long. Keep faith. Keep building. Keep pursuing what God has called you to. Noah was obedient when obedience didn't make sense. It provided protection later. He had faith when others had given up. He followed God's instructions. And in the moment when he needed it, his faith paid off. You know what else Noah didn't do? Noah didn't question God. We don't see that in the text. We live in this modern idea where we love to use these two words to describe our relationship with God, messy and questioning. Now, I'm not saying you can't have an authentic relationship with God. It's perfectly okay. Read David and his Psalms. His relationship with God, sure, in some regard, was messy, and, and, and certainly he poured his heart out before God. But in Hebrews 11.3, it said that Noah's attitude towards God was not messy and questioning. It was reverent and fearful. It is much better for us, Christian, to have our relationship with God described as fearful and reverent to the almighty God than um, to fall into the trap of saying, well, God, I'm not sure about this. Losing the fact that the story isn't about us and that he is omnipotent. He is above all, as uh, David describes him. He is the king over all the earth. To that God, I want to fear and revere that God, not doubt and question him. I want my heart's attitude to be that I can, yes, pour myself out, but at the end of it, I end with saying, but God, but you're in charge. You're in control. I revere you. I trust you. I don't presume to make my thinking your thinking. And Noah didn't. He didn't question God on the fairness of what was about to happen, the length of time that he had to keep being obedient and expressing faith. He humbled himself and he trusted in the God who deserves our reverence. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, God delivers a promise to Noah. And it is this promise that kept Noah motivated. He was motivated by the promise. And it's not bad to be motivated by the promise. We're given a promise. Similarly, uh, on this side of the flood, on this side of the cross, Peter calls them precious promises. In Psalms, they say they're promises that will never be defiled. A promise is like God will never leave us or forsake us. Promise that he will work out all things together for our good. Promises like we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God. As Noah was motivated by the promise, you and I can be motivated by the promise. The scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of the promise. That we are given the Holy Spirit uh, as the power to keep living until the promise of the new creation and our full glorification in Christ comes to completion in the end of time. In the place where there will be no tears, there will be no death, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow. We can be motivated by the promise. Friend, our hope, we don't hope like those in the world. Our hope is in something else. Our ultimate hope isn't even found here on this earth. It's found in something in the future. And so our deepest source of hope, our deepest source of joy is in the promise of a coming king someday. So as Noah was motivated by the promise, we too can be motivated by the promise. And lastly, what, what do we see in this story? God was with Noah in the storm. This is a precedent that God is going to show here throughout the rest of the scriptures. God was with Noah in his storm. He was actually with Jonah in his storm and in the whale. He was with the disciples in their storm. God was with Noah in the storm. And the storm came, and it was an unprecedented storm at the time. And it's a storm that has never been matched again. And no matter how strong the opposition is, no matter how bad the storm is, God is with us in the storm. And we read this story, and we see that God made a plan of protection for Noah and his family in the midst of the craziest storm. And that he can do that for you and I. And that no matter what we face, no matter how crazy the storms of our lives get, God is with us in the storm. There's this interesting little thing that happens at the end of the storm. Noah and his family, I think they're ready to leave the ark. And so it said that Noah made a decision to send out a bird, and then it came back. And then he made another decision to send out a bird, and it came back. And then he made another decision to send out a bird, and it kept coming back, and it wasn't ready. And then it says that God told Noah to do something. See, at the end of the storm, Noah said, hey, we're ready to leave the storm. And he made his own decision to try and step out, but it wasn't ready yet. When do we leave the storm? When do we pursue something new? When God tells us to go pursue something new. Not on our own timing. We don't get to jump ahead. We don't get to fast forward God's plan. We don't get to say, God, enough storm. I'm done. I'm leaving now. God will be with us all the way to the end. And when it's over, he'll say, now we move on. Don't move ahead of God's timing. These are all powerful things that we see in the story. And Noah truly is a great person. And it's easy for us to look into stories like this and to say, I need to be obedient when obedience doesn't make sense. And you should. I need to have faith to keep on building. And you should. You need to fear and revere God. That's a good plan. You need to live by the promise. Yes, you do. 
You need to remember God is with you in the storm. He is. This is good. But it's not ultimately what the story is all about. See, the story is all of those things, but it is also so much more. Back to the question that everyone asked, how could a loving God uh, pour all of his wrath out on the earth? And the God of the New Testament would never do that. The God of the New Testament is love, and so he would never pour his wrath out. No, sin grieves God's heart as much in the New Testament as it does in the Old, as much now as it did back then. And God has to deal with sin. And he dealt with it in the flood in a way that was just. What happens in the flood? The one innocent person is preserved and all the guilty are taken out. Part of the reason we don't like the story or we question God is because we don't see sin as an offense against God. But it is. And so the story of the flood, you know what it is? It's just. So people say, I want a God who's just so that the earth is just. God acted in justice. All of the guilty were taken out. The one innocent was preserved. But the second story, oh, it's so much better. See, in the second story, God still is grieved by sin, and God still pours all of his wrath out. God poured out as much wrath in the second story as he did in the first story. But in the second story, all of the wrath falls on the innocent one, Jesus, on the cross. He's the Noah of the story. And in the second story, all of the wrath of humanity falls on him. And the goodness all falls on the guilty. Do you want to know who you are in the story of Noah? The reason we don't understand it is because we always think, I would have been Noah. No, you would have drowned in the flood. That's who you were in the story, a heart torn towards evil. There's only one Noah in the story, Jesus. He's the Noah. He was obedient when obedience didn't make sense. He was faithful to preserve all the way to the end. He revered God enough to submit himself to his full will. In Hollywood, they always want to remake the story where Noah makes the ark and then he lets everyone else come on with him. The Bible's got a better story than even that. Jesus makes the ark. He steps off of it and lets everybody else in. And then he takes on the full wrath of the flood. See, in the first story, the rain of terror and horror and fear fell on all the guilty. And the innocent Noah was preserved under a piece of wood. In the second story, all of the wrath falls on Jesus laying on top of the wood. And the rain of his grace falls on everybody else. That's what makes this story Worth telling. 
So should you be obedient when obedience doesn't make sense? Yeah. Should you have faith when it begins to dwindle? Certainly. Is there a promise ahead of you? Yes, there is. Should you revere the Lord? Certainly. Is he with you in the storm? Absolutely. But don't miss the heart of the story. God poured out his wrath. But Jesus took it upon himself so that you and I could be rescued from it. We're going to sing a closing song today. And when we do, here's what I want to encourage for each of you. First, remember that sin does grieve God's heart and God has to deal with it, but God already dealt with it. Which means on this side of the cross, you and I don't have to pay the payment of our sin anymore through shame and guilt. Jesus already paid the payment of God dealing with sin. Here's the other thing. On this side of the cross, you and I don't have to go about and build an ark so that we're okay with God. Jesus did all the work for us. So during this last song, if you've never embraced the grace that rained down on the guilty while Jesus took on the wrath as the innocent, then embrace it this morning. Sin does grieve God's heart. Your sin grieves God's heart. But Jesus has paid the penalty for you. We call this salvation. Repent, believe, and be new. For the rest of us, maybe, may we be reminded of the beauty of his grace raining down and may that prompt in us obedience and faith and reverence, living under the promise, knowing he's always with us. And so during this last song, you can sit, you can stand, you can do whatever you want. But during this last song, Let faith come back up. Realize that God was working in Noah well before Noah knew what was going to come and realize that God is doing that in your life. So find the strength through him to stay obedient, my friend, to hold on to faith and to trust that God is working even when you don't see it. Noah had to wait 100 years. I doubt any of you will wait that long. He will move at the right time. Hold on faith until he dies. Thanks again for joining us today. If you'd like more information on our church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com.